The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you. This is Cabinated Comics, and I'm your host, John Clark. As I mentioned on the end of the last episode, where we honored Ron Zabrocki, and thank you guys for your response to that. That was really heartwarming. I uh, mentioned that Bill Monroe passed away, and uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know Bill really well. He would appear on the show probably two to three times a year. He was the host of his own podcast, The Stroke Cast. But most importantly, he was my best friend for the last 35 years. I met Bill in high school in the late 80s. I met him at a party, and as we were leaving, it turned out I kind of lived on his way, so he just decided to drive me home. And this was a period uh, in high school in New York. None of us had driver's license. We took the train everywhere. And as I said, it was the 80s in New York, so it wasn't safe to take the train anywhere. So he drove me home, and we had... We got along really, really well. And then I would see him from time to time. He went to a different school than I did. We both competed in speech and debate in high school, uh, but in different categories. So we were never in competition. But every time we would see each other, uh, we would always have a lot of fun. And then this, that summer, the summer of 1989, which, of course, as you guys know, is the summer of Batman and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, Bill was leaving to go to Montana for college. So he just wanted to hang out with his friends all the time. So he kept uh, organizing these uh, happenings and that we would go to. And it'd be like, there'd be like a crew of 10 or 15 of us that would go to all these. We'd just hang out in a ball field or we'd, you know, we'd go to somebody's house. Uh, we didn't have any money and we didn't really drink or anything. But every time we went, it was always in a faraway place. And he would always drive me home and he would go over the bridge to Rockaway and go back to Ozone Park where he lived, um, coincidentally, about a half a mile away from Ron Zabrocki, uh, who they didn't know each other well. But uh, it was just odd that these two happened so close to each other. Uh, Bill went to college in Montana and Helena, Montana, to Carroll College. And he and I stayed in touch, and we would uh, talk all the time. And every now and then he would come to visit, usually around the holidays, and he would just come and pick me up, and we'd drive to a mall or uh, we'd drive to a pizza hut uh, out in Long Island, and it would always be really fun. And anytime I brought him with our other friends, uh, and at that point, people who knew him or people who didn't know him, everybody just liked him. Everybody really got along with him. He was a very smart guy. He was really personable. Um, as he liked to tell me, he knew – a little about a lot, and I knew a lot about a little, hence this 10-year uh, podcast on the four things I care about. Uh, and we just got to know each other really well, and we just always stayed friends. And it was one of those friendships where we'd see each other maybe once a year, and uh, we'd see each other, um, you know, we'd talk to each other two, three times a year, but we'd always pick up right where we left off. There was never, there was never like a, a shaking off the rust. There was never like an awkward hello or, or warming up. It was always right on board. Uh, so one summer I decided to uh, stay out there with him in Montana. There was really nothing going on there, but I just kind of want to get out of New York. My band had broken up. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And it, 
I just lived with him for a couple of weeks. And uh, I met my girlfriend out there. She decided to move back. She still lives in New York to this day. So um, part of that was part of the appeal of being out there. But really, I just kind of lived in Bill's house. And he went to work and came back. And, you know, I made lunch. And uh, we hung around. And we went to dinner with people. And it was just relaxed. The, our relationship was always relaxed. We would have great conversations. They'd be challenging. We disagreed on some things, but there was we never had an argument in 35 years. We just always kind of looked each at each other and was like, oh, your perspective is different than mine, and enjoyed it. And that just continued and continued and continued. I graduated college. I broke up with that girlfriend. I moved to Astoria from Rockaway, which was still Queens, but really far. Uh, I started getting jobs in uh, toy companies. Um, I published a couple of comics. Uh, I wrote some greeting cards and just, I would always see Bill like every, you know, six months or so he would come into town. He would visit his mom in New Jersey and he would always stop by. Uh, and, uh, we got to the point where I got a job in advertising and he would come around. He was the best man at my wedding. He organized a bachelor party where we just went from strip club to strip club to strip club in Manhattan. Uh, got me so drunk right away that I didn't know where we were the entire time. And later I told him he did a brilliant job and he said, and he said, oh, I, I, I just listened to whoever suggested the next place to go. It's like, I had no idea. I, I was thinking we'd go to Hooters and that would be it. Uh, but he was always kind of rolled with the punches. He was a great salesman because of that. He was good at reading people. He was good at adapting. He was very flexible and fluid. And uh, he knew who he liked and he knew who he didn't like. And if he didn't like you, he would just very, very elegantly step out of the conversation. And he was not a person you'd hear from again. Uh, and that wasn't a lot of people. He was very live and let live for people. So he wasn't close to a lot of people, but we were close. And then before I got married, uh, he was my best man. And I flew out to Seattle. And it was my first time in Seattle. And I was so excited to be there. It was the place of Nirvana. It was... Uh, it was a place I'd always wanted to be in the 90s, and I loved it. I fell in love with it, and I went out there about five, six more times, including last year on my 50th birthday, and uh, that was one of my plans. I was uh, I loved it so much, I wanted to move out there. I applied for a job at Amazon, which thankfully I didn't get to hearing about the way it went that way and uh, with that corporation, uh, and I stayed in New York until I moved out to Chicago, and he would come out and visit me. Um, but before the wedding, I flew out to Seattle and then we rented a Crown Victoria and we drove from Seattle to Chicago for four days. So my last four days of being a bachelor were spent with Bill in this big old 70s style car, which he wouldn't let me drive. And we went through Yellowstone and the Mall of America and Mount Rushmore. And we saw all these cool things together. And we had a little digital video camera. We make little sketches. Uh, we created this sketch called The Blind Travelogue where I was this guy who thought he was at a different landmark, every landmark we went to. Uh, we were in the Mall of America and he thought it was Arlington National Cemetery. Um, it, was, it was, I put them on YouTube. If you want to see blind travelogues on YouTube, uh, those are sketches Bill and I made. They're not great. It was about a year or two before I started stand up and learned what comedy was. Um, but we had the best time. He got a suite at the Palmer House uh, and... He uh, kept me up all night the day of my wedding watching Return of the King. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just had a, a really relaxed time. And uh, when the kids were born, he would come and visit. And 
And his life was kind of uh, steady, you know. He's, uh, his girlfriend, Kathy, he was with for 25 years. She's the one that let me know that he suddenly passed away. Um, they just had a steady relationship. She lived in the building, and then she moved into the apartment, and that was it. There was never any talk of them getting married. There was never any talk of them getting having kids. And he was fine with it. He worked at um, Toshiba for a very long time, which he loved. That was his dream job because... He uh, he's said his life was like George Clooney and up in the air. He would fly two weeks out of every month. And he would send me sketches in hotel rooms. And he'd send me uh, videos that he would take just on the road. And he loved it. He just loved being on the road and meeting new people and talking to people and uh, selling Toshiba. And when that ended, he went over to Microsoft and he worked with them for a while. They laid him off and brought him back. Freelance, and that was kind of what he did the last few years. And every year, he he would say, "Yeah, I don't know if uh, I don't know if they're gonna renew me, and if they don't, I'll figure it out." He was never really worried on the outside, which was so disarming. Uh, because obviously, if you've listened to the show for uh, more than one episode, I worry about everything. I've been worried since um, I think Skylab fell was probably the first time I experienced existential dread, and it hasn't left me. And Bill never seemed to worry, and we we became this pair. Uh, I we told him we went on the Joko cruise twice. He went every single year, and when he passed away, there were so many people that were regulars on the cruise that reached out um, to the post and people that I I had only met on the boat, people that I never met on the boat, um, reached out, and connected. He loved the Joko cruise, and if you go back. You can listen to the two times I was on it. We did podcasts on the boat. It was the first cruise I'd ever been on. I tried to convince him to take the Star Trek cruise one year and skip the Joko cruise. Uh, Bill was the only other real Trekkie that I grew up with. He never would do it. He wouldn't do it. Uh, he really he wanted me to go on the Joko cruise in 2023, but I had just lost my job. And then when I got a job, we were moving. Uh, Jill wasn't um, comfortable being on a boat uh, this soon after COVID. So we said maybe next time, and uh, unfortunately there wasn't. Um, as you know, Bill had a stroke uh, probably about six, seven years ago and took that in stride. You know, he slurred for a couple of days, but he never lost any of his cognitive skills, and he was a really brilliant, sharp guy. Uh, he did lose the use of his arm, and he walked with a cane for the rest of his life. And one thing uh, we learned about strokes is that, you know, it becomes a pre-existing condition. You're never 100% out of a stroke. And I believe he had complications at the doctor, and that's what happened. But he even turned that experience positive. I had started Caffeinated Comics, and Bill was on it very regularly. And I was uh, Bill called himself the East Coast branch of Caffeinated Comics. But then after he had his stroke... And he was on the podcast very soon after a stroke. He decided he wanted his own podcast He had, uh, about strokes. He had been doing one called Five Minute Talk Tips about uh, public speaking. And he said it was that was fun, but it ne- didn't quite take off the way he wanted to. So he did one about strokes, about um, interviewing people that had, had strokes and how they coped and what their um, rehab was like and uh, what their experience was like when it happened. And that started to take off. It became more popular than this podcast. He... Uh, really reached people, and that was another group of people that reached out to me after he passed. They talked about uh, that it was one of their favorite podcasts and it helped them get through their own strokes, and they were surprised he was gone. And we were all surprised he's gone because he was such a positive force, and he had such energy, and he was so smart. 
that even with a stroke that many people would consider debilitating, he just took it in stride. He's like, ah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Uh, in fact, the last time we were on um, the cruise together was 2020 in March 2020. And as you know, while we were on the ocean, the world shut down. And there were there was talk that we might not even get off the boat. Uh, if you think back to those days, those initial days of lockdown, cruise ships were very much in the news. They were stopped at ports and they wouldn't let people off because they were these contained environments. So when people first got sick, pretty much everyone got sick. And which is one reason Jill was a little reticent to take the cruise, even in 2023. And Bill was even fine about that. He was like, ah, we'll be fine. You know, if we don't get off the boat, we'll live on the boat. It'll be good. And I was like, well, oh, they're saying they might cancel all flights. Nobody might be able to fly. And our boat was coming in to uh, Florida. And you live in Seattle and I live in Chicago. He goes, we'll rent a van. He just always was happy about it. Uh, and in fact, even on that cruise, you know, I took that week as kind of a, a time of self-assessment. And I was, uh, you know, I was thinking uh, about my marriage and what steps I was going to take because uh, we were clearly frustrated and it wasn't wasn't working. And one of the things that had happened was my ex went on a trip to Mexico. And by the time she came back, I was on the cruise going to um, the Dominican Republic. And we didn't call each other once. And uh, I realized, okay, that's probably a big sign after being together for 20 years that we don't even want to contact one another. And I would tell Bill about this. And Bill was like, nah, you'll figure it out one way or another. You'll be fine. And uh, when I told him that I'd been separated, uh, he probably said the most positive thing that anyone said to me during that period. And it was a period I didn't really want to talk about it because it seemed like such a failure. And I told him, and he said to me, well, God knows you tried everything you could. And uh, that was really heartwarming. Um, he was always brutally honest in a positive way. When we were young and dating, um, I would always get, I would get crushes on girls and I'd be afraid to ask them out. I'd be really shy around them. So I would get in the friend zone a lot because I would talk to them a lot, but I would never get around to asking them out. And they would eventually lose interest if they had interest at all. I was also bad at, I'm reading signs of whether people like me or not. Um, but I would always create what I called the master plan. And Howie was involved in many master plans as well because he had the same problem I did. Uh, we would meet a girl in class that we liked and we would work for weeks saying, okay, I'm going to give her a lot of attention, but then I'm going to ignore her the next time. So she's going to wonder what's up and I'll give her a compliment and I'll get her a number, but I won't call her. And, and you know, all of these little games. And, uh, that stopped because I was telling Bill about this master plan I had with uh, with this one girl. And he said, you know what I love about the master plan? They never work. And I laughed probably harder than I've ever laughed. Bill had such a great sense of humor. He absolutely supported my comedy career. When, um, when I started doing stand-up, uh, it was a couple months in. He called me up and asked if I wanted to go to Vegas to see Billy Joel. And I said, no, I, actually, I've already seen, I saw Billy Joel on this tour and I don't have any money. And he said, well, I got miles, so why don't you fly out? And we spent that weekend in Vegas. It was the only time I've been to Las Vegas. And we stayed in the Las Vegas Hilton, which at that time had Star Trek The Experience. And we were two Trekkies and we did the whole thing. We did this entire, we did the gold package. I, um, I have my picture taken on the bridge of the enterprise and so did he and i told him hey bill why don't 
uh, when we take the picture. How about in my picture, I'll be the captain and you can be the first officer. And then in your picture, we'll switch. You be the captain and I'll be your first officer. And Bill went, I'm nobody's first officer. I'm a captain. So our pictures were each one of us alone because he was steadfast in that opinion. Uh, there's really nobody that met him that didn't really, really like him. He was just, uh, he was very comfortable in his own skin. And that was something I envied. Uh, we had very similar backgrounds. We had both were raised Catholic and grew up in Queens as Gen Xers. But he had this ease about him that I could never really attempt. And uh, my way was to do all, the, they call these big swings. And he was always there for me, you know, uh, when I was in college, I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. He would come to my shows and he'd be like, that was really great. And then I was like, I'm going to write comic books. And he had my comic books and I signed them for him. And then there was, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And he brought all of his coworkers on a field trip to New York to the club to see my show. He uh, was always there for me. If I wanted him on the podcast, he would be on the podcast. If I wanted him in a sketch, he would be in a sketch. You know, uh, any project I asked him to do, he would always make the time. He wasn't good at calling you back. Uh, it was usually a couple of weeks before he would call me back, which is honestly uh, one of the reasons I was having trouble processing this. I was like, well, he didn't talk to me much anyway. So the fact that he's gone hasn't changed my daily routine at all. Uh, so it's taken longer to sink in than uh, somebody like Ron Zabrocki, who uh, I didn't talk to very much over the years uh, after we made the demo together in the 90s, but we always talked to each other on social media. And, um, you know, Ron's family has been really uh, vocal about posting things. And uh, I, I shared the podcast uh, I ran last week with them, and they were really grateful. And that was a good experience. With Bill, he kind of just, just, he let people do their own thing. So he was never precious with anything. He never pushed his stuff in your face. You know, he figured out how to automate the social media for the stroke cast. So I'm still getting posts from the stroke cast, which I feel is kind of odd, but he had just set the algorithm so well that it would just continue to run and run. But he never was like, Hey, everybody look at me. I'm the most important thing in the room. He just kind of waited his turn. Um, and, when it was his time to speak, he would usually say the smartest thing he could. And that won people over. Uh, there were many times he was in a room where somebody would just talk and talk and talk and talk. And he would just go, okay, I'm going to go. Like he never would fight to dominate a room. He would just, he would feel the energy and he would uh, go with it or not go with it. And his final appearance on Caffeinated Comics uh, was so much fun. That I'm not going to run it here now. In fact, it, we did a video of it. We captured the video and it's on YouTube. If you go to the Caffeinated Comics Facebook page, you can see our last podcast, which we did late last year, about seven months ago. And Elliot Serrano and Wally Podrazic and Bill and I are all on it. We're talking about whether 1982 or 1989 was a bigger geek year in movies. And I rewatched that after I got the news and it struck me about, uh, how knowledgeable he was and how he was an equal part of that conversation. You know, Elliot had, uh, says done radio and uh, written for Chicago Red Eye and published his own comics. Wally, Wally Podrazic is a professor of media who's written, you know, nine editions of the TV book. Uh, really smart guys. And he, again, just, it was an equal participant. Uh, he knew his experience and he knew, uh, he knew himself and he could just step in. So, it was hard for me to figure out what to rerun 
you know, last week with Ron, he was only on the podcast once. And even though we had been friends since the 80s, I had this one interview I did with him. So it was very easy for me to say, hey, why don't you listen to this interview again? It was done before we started on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. So a lot of listeners now probably had never heard it. With Bill, it was much harder. As I said, he was on the podcast, you know, all around six months ago. And he had his own podcast. So when I looked through all of the podcasts that he had done with me over the last 10 years, uh, the one, this is the one I wanted to, to run. And this is from 2016. This is he and I talking about Star Trek's 50th anniversary. As I mentioned a couple of times before, he was a big Trekkie, uh, which is why it was so much fun to be with him in Vegas and go through the backstage tour and ride the Next Generation rides. He loved Voyager, and I don't. And that was another one of the dividing points. He loved William Shatner. There was a weekend where, uh, after I moved to Chicago, things felt, got very dark. Um, it was, I believe it was before I started the podcast. And I just kind of left, and I went to Seattle, and I asked him if I could just come for, for a week or so. And he, he let me sleep on his couch. And... We just sat around and watched TV. The weather was terrible. And I had been to Seattle. He didn't need to show me the sights. We just kind of sat there drinking coffee and watching TV for four days. Um, he introduced me to Community, uh, which uh, I knew at the time I had known Megan Gans from The Onion. And I knew she was a writer on that. And so we watched that. We watched Ice Loves Coco, which was a reality show with Ice-T and his wife Coco, who... Uh, kind of brought home the fact that my relationship was not as good as Ice T's and Coco. And you know what? They're still married. But he loved watching Shatner's Raw Nerve. And it was this awful talk show where William Shatner would bring on people and insult them just to get a reaction out of them. And this was around the time I started to turn against William Shatner. I started to think he was not a very good person to be around, as funny as it could be. And Bill was there for it. And we just watched all of these episodes together and drinking Seattle coffee. Um, and it's one of my best favorite memories. Um, no matter when, what was going on in my life or how big the event or how small the event, uh, if Bill was coming, it was just going to feel extra fun and more comfortable. So without a lot of people to talk to about Star Trek, uh, I invited Bill on to talk about the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And that's kind of how I want to show you our relationship. Um, it's a little give and take. It's a little uh, riffing on each other. It's a little busting on each other. But there's a lot of respect uh, for each other's intellect. And that's what I'm going to miss most. I don't think I've ever had a friend that had a give and take as well as Bill. And I was really honored to know that he felt the same way. Uh, he was a very private guy. This is the last story I'll tell before I run the old podcast. Uh, he came to Chicago just randomly and said, hey, I'm in Chicago. You want to go get it, get dinner? And I met him at the Elephant and Castle in the Loop. And um, that's when he convinced me to go on the Joko cruise. And uh, we had a few beers and we were telling the old stories and it was the most Irish Catholic goodbye. Not an Irish goodbye because we actually said goodbye. It was this Irish Catholic goodbye where I had a few beers in me, and as I was leaving, I was like, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we should keep stuff bottled in. I was like, I'll see you later, Bill. I love you. And he said, it was the only time I said it to him, and he said to me, "Hey, that's great," and I laughed as hard 
as I laughed the first time because it was the perfect Irish Catholic. I'm not going to lean in for you. It was also Irish Catholic from my perspective. I've had a few drinks. I'm going to tell you how I feel. And he had less drinks and refrained so from doing so. Um, but I did love him. I, I, I loved him um, from high school and I never stopped. And uh, when his gr- girlfriend, Kathy, told me that he'd passed, she said, I wanted to let you know because you were his closest friend. And honestly, that was the only time anyone told me that about him. Uh, he was best man at my wedding. You know, he was uh, he was always there for me. And I knew we had a great friendship, but he never felt comfortable saying it. So at that moment, just even hearing it from uh, from his loved one really meant a lot to me. Uh, Kathy's a very private person. So she's not somebody that would be on this podcast. I'm not even going to give her last name. I don't think uh, she would want that. Um, but because he lives in Seattle, I live in Chicago. He's from New York. I don't know that that there'll be a next step. I don't know that there'll be a memorial. Uh, with Ron, Ron Zabrocki had a memorial in Queens, but I was not able to get there from Chicago. Uh, I heard it was beautiful. It is on YouTube. Uh, so, but, you know, but Ron was not my best friend and Bill is. So if there, if whatever next step happens, I'll, I'll be a part of it. But if not, uh, I have my memories and I've been able to share them with the other people that have been on the podcast with him and with, uh, with all of you. And I appreciate listening to this. It's been, uh, an emotional month and I appreciate you guys going through it with me and not just checking out and going like, when are you going to talk about guardians of the galaxy three? And you know what? I still haven't seen it. Maybe Memorial day weekend, but after Memorial day weekend, damn it across the spider verse is coming out and that I am seeing opening weekend. So I will do my best to get things back on a geeky track. And I know Top Men will be covering Indiana Jones and Last Crusade soon. Uh, so we'll have plenty of geekness and um, good times ahead. But for now, let's listen to Bill and myself talking together. It's like it's become this core thing. It's been core part of my life for so long. Why not on every podcast conversation about Star Trek? I don't think I've talked to anyone else about Star Trek on this podcast, <laughs> except for John Champion, the host of Mission Log. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of cares about it a little bit. And Houston Huddles- Huddleston, who owns the bridge. <laughs> who owns the bridge, exactly. <laughs> but the last time we talked was Star Trek Beyond. And then before that, the last time we talked was uh, when Nimoy passed away. And now this week was the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And I'm like, are we just going to tell the same stories again? <laughs> Probably, but Probably. that's never stopped us before. Yeah, but uh, but it's interesting. Uh, there were a lot of memes that went out about Star Trek, and people seem kind of energized again. I think both because Star Trek Beyond was good, even though it wasn't a big hit. And I think people are really anticipating this new show that it kind of feels safe to go back to Star Trek. You know, it, it, it does. And I think we've seen the audience expand so much more uh, over the past couple of years versus where it just was. And now you've got the two different audiences from the different movie universes uh, uh, who, who love the traditional Trek versus loving, uh, loving new Trek. Like say combined with the new show coming and 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 just a nice big 
round number of 50. I mean, even when we saw a few years ago, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary really helped galvanize people around around that. But what, what was really interesting there is that was able to galvanize people around a single episode and a single moment, whereas right now we're galvanizing people around the concept and the spirit of Star Trek itself because there really is no new content specifically for the 50th. It's just everything that's about the culture. And it's really giving us a chance to go ahead and live in that 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 culture and absorb it and, and celebrate it, uh, especially which is especially nice in a uh, you know, in the political environment we have now. It gives us an alternative for we can look at a future that really is hopeful and positive and adventurous and and can really bring us to new things and 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 it's about that that whole spirit of in the air of giving us this this alternative option yeah although uh in the star trek timeline right now khan ruled about half the world yeah so (laughs) we're kind of heading to where star trek is true you know and then we have the the collapse of society and then cisco goes back in time and sees that and then there's the rape gangs Sure. We're we're heading towards all of that, whether or not we achieve warp drive. See, we're living the Star Trek experience now in a way we haven't before. Yeah. We've got, we, you know, Zephram Cochran is out there somewhere. Being really drunk. Being really, (laughs) can you blame him? No, but (laughs) yeah, you're right. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't a big event for the 50th. Now, obviously Star Trek Beyond was, uh, going to come out this year for the 50th well but it, yeah but that was coincidental to the 50th it was, it, it was it, nothing about the 50th but it was it it wasn't because with all the setbacks they had of losing their director losing their script that movie was very rushed so it would be out this summer so it would be out to coincide with the 50th but there wasn't anything anniversary about that film right so and, we do kind of have just this moment of like Hey, it's streaming on everything. It's on Hulu. It's on Netflix. So I know it's awesome. Going back to early episodes last night. Right now, my girlfriend is down in the living room and and she's watching TNG. What episode? Uh, I'm not sure what she's on. Right, actually, I think she's on the holodeck episode where something goes wrong. Uh, it's uh, kind of like that episode of Three's Company with yeah, a misunderstanding. Exactly. Uh, this is the one. It's like that where... episode of Friends where Chandler was sarcastic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is the, the you know this is the one where. Uh, oh, by, by the way, I have a new theory about Three's Company. We can come back to that later. But uh, why would why would we wait? What is okay. your theory about Three's Here's Company? Here's my theory about Three's Company. Three's Company, of course, everything is about a misunderstanding. Uh, well, and this actually theory comes from our experience. We've been streaming a lot of original Odd Couple, which is a great an, an amazing. Amazing sitcom Where that holds that streaming? up. It's uh, it's streaming on Hulu. Oh, I have the DVDs. I didn't realize it was streaming anywhere. Oh yeah, it's it's really amazing. What's amazing about the classic Odd Couple is it starts with one one simple situation, and then they just pile on more and more and more and more. It's really it's just keeps building slowly and steadily through every episode until everything just goes nuts towards the end. Yeah. Uh, and that's the formula they use. They do it really well. Three's and that company. Kind, that kind of that was Gary Marshall. Yeah. That that formula made its way into Laverne and Shirley. Right. It skipped right. Happy Days completely, but it <laughs> pops up again in Laverne and Shirley, which was much more of a slapstick show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched an episode of Laverne and Shirley in a good twenty years. It's on MeTV. We ran into one like last week, and and Ben was like, 
wait, what is going on? <laughs> like, is these two girls live in a basement mm-hmm. and uh, they run in circles. <laughs> and and eventually Michael McKeon shows up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, but, but when we start talking about those formula and Three's Company is, the for, is, of course, the formula of there's a misunderstanding and they try and hide it and everything goes crazy from there. Yeah, how how early do you think they got out of that writers room every day? Oh, I you know, before they ran before they finished their, their, the pot of coffee. Uh <laughs> but Three's Company is a response to Watergate. It's in, all because okay. of the Nixon administration. Cuz everything that happened in the Nick, you know, everything that happened with Watergate and the collapse of it, it wasn't about the break-in, it was about the cover-up and the continuing cover-up and trying to cover up for that mistake and hide it and delete it and eventually all the wackiness gets to the point where the president quits. That's <laughs> Three's Company. Three's Company is a model of why Watergate was bad and why you shouldn't deal with the cover-up. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and and yet that entire series was predicated on a lie. Yes. <laughs> one, one simple lie. Yes, that Jack was gay. That Jack was gay because that was the only way he could live in a platonic relationship with, with, with two women. Which ended and up being a, five but, women. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But what's amazing, what's amazing there is that when we look at, when, when, you know, even when you look, look today and talk about the challenges people face, uh, you know, with, homophobia and, and all those fun things, uh, fun things, whatever. Uh, uh, homophobia we, is fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's a fun word. It's a thriller. Uh, it's a thrill ride. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. so scared. But, but in the seventies, for whatever reason, it was more socially acceptable for him to be gay than to, for a straight guy to live with straight ladies. Yeah. During the sexual revolution. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. But but gay was so taboo at that point anyway that it was like every every time he acted gay he would just co- put on a completely different character. Right. I I'm trying to find a segue back into Star Trek. <laughs> well, I mean, th- well that's the kind of, that's that's the kind of thing though. Let me see what let me see if I can do this. Yeah. You know, obviously we had uh, and, and you had that and you had a lot of that slapstickiness coming out in the 70s following on at the end of at the end of Star Trek. Really, the 60s gave us this really new entry into what you can do with television. And, you know, even as you start looking at each episode of TOS, yeah, there were a lot of common themes that ran through them. But, you know, the episodes generally were different were different they weren't all followed the same formula from beginning through end right uh and you started to see them experimenting with color and experimenting with storytelling and exper- experimenting with chat with with not just putting taboos on the air but actually tra- challenging those taboos and challenging what we would think about them uh and the 70s uh in a lot of the sitcoms was in many respects, you could see it as sort of a reaction back to a much simpler form of storytelling that didn't that wasn't as challenging and didn't evolve involve as much thought. Well, that, that's, but so how's that? Well, that's interesting. I think that the uh, Star Trek, in many many ways, is, is a response to the civil rights movement of the '60s, uh, in a way that Three's Company is a response to the sexual revolution, and as you're telling us, Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's an interesting theory about this. The '60s television is that it, uh, by the mid '60s, it had got you know things were so heated politically right. that television was pure escapism. So it was at the time Star Trek was on, 
Gilligan's Island, I believe, had ended, but you have the monkeys and you have Batman and you have Get Smart and you have My Mother the Car and you have the mm-hmm. Munsters and you have like all these outlandish premises. And Lost in Space was the main competition for Star Trek. And at, and at that time, I think the reason it got on the air was like, look at that guy with the pointy ears and we're beaming mm-hmm. down to planets and shooting things. Uh, and I feel like they they were able to talk about things like civil rights and talk about social issues in a more subtle way than the Twilight Zone did, which, which ended the year before Star Trek started. And the Twilight Zone is a great show, maybe a better show than Star Trek. I, I don't even have a side in that argument, but <laughs> well, you know, the Twilight, you know, I mean, that's, that's really tough, really tough to compare for, for, for a couple of reasons. For one thing, you're right. Star Trek was definitely, you know, much more subversive. And I think that's a good, that's, that's the way I, I like to think about it with the way it deals with those issues. But as compared to a show like the Twilight Zone, uh, the Twilight Zone could really have a lot more flexibility in how you're going to piece a show together because of its anthology nature, because you didn't have to worry about, you know, the ongoing character arcs and what are you going to do and how do you provide the proper level of respect for this character, which is, you know, sort of, you know, Nimoy's whole big thing with Spock is he was the true guardian of what Spock could be and trying to not have Spock look silly or do things that are against his character. When you look at a Twilight Zone, you can craft each individual 15 or 20 or 30 minutes as its own thing. And because you don't have to have the exact same people working on everything, you can work on a lot more things spread out, which gives you more opportunity to craft and refine and really focus on just what are we doing with this little bit amount of time. Whereas with Star Trek, we're talking about an hour-long drama that you have to kick out you know, every week, uh, you know, with budgets that are declining, you know, month after month that it's on the air while doing new things with special effects, while at the same time exploring this new world of color television and, and sort of trying to do all that. It's amazing what you're what they're able to do in that process. And so, you know, and the other, the other side of it is that we look at Star Trek as a whole and we go back and we watch all of those episodes with twilight zone. We have, there are so many classic episodes, but there are a ton that nobody ever wants to watch again. Yeah. And the thing about twilight zone is that when they did do social issues and they did it a lot, uh, they kind of hit the nail really hard on the head. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, on mission log podcast, they call it the, you see Timmy moment. (laughs) <laughs> like, like uh, they stop the story and go, well, you know what we're really talking about. And Twilight Zone did that hardcore because Rod Serling was coming from this issue oriented New York playwright. Playhouse 90 was all about like, this is a drama about the housing problem. So he had, he had that. Whereas in Star Trek, it's, it's embedded a little deeper I mean, you know, there's yes, Frank Gorshin plays a half black, half white guy, but but <laughs> right. the, but the subtlety of 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 everyone's equal and everyone's different nationalities. Or there's that episode where Julie Newmar is is a pregnant princess and she keeps slapping Doctor McCoy until he slaps her back. <laughs> there's something very progressive in that. Right. Well, nobody well, ever mentions that. They mention Kurt kissing Ahura. <laughs> nobody ever mentions McCoy slapping Catwoman. <laughs> well, at you know, at, at the same time, you know, we start thinking about you know other things that just sort of come out. You know, in in Charlie X, which I was just watching last night, Kirk actually has to say to Charlie X, 
there's no good way to hit a woman. Yeah, so hit her any way you want. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, you know, and, and you start, which is not something you're necessarily hearing in a lot of other shows, even when they're going for trying to go for some comedy. Um, you know, there is still that un- undercurrent there of, of what it's of what it's doing. Yeah, I it's let's broaden this out a little bit and talk about I, all of Star Trek, because I, sure. I noticed something recently. And I, and now that Star Trek is 50 years old, one of the things that hit me, which had never hit me before, because it obviously wasn't 50 years old before. But when I watched the original Star Trek, I it doesn't feel timeless to me anymore. Like it, it went through this arc for me. And mm-hmm. um, we've talked about this many times. We were, we're the same age. We were both born after Star Trek ran. So right. we both discovered uh, Star Trek through the reruns. Exactly. And, and, Sat- Saturday nights at six o'clock. Yeah. And for me, it was the movies led me to the TV show was mm-hmm. uh, seeing the motion picture and then Wrath of Khan. And I was such a Star Wars fan that he was another space show. And it was Wrath of Khan because it's so goddamn great. Uh, yeah. I was not prepared for Wrath of Khan at all. I went to see Wrath of Khan so I wouldn't have to see Annie. <laughs> and then they killed Spock. <laughs> and I'm 10 like, what? wait, what? Wait, now it's over? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I went into it with my, my uh, you know, obviously I'd, I'd been through the reruns, but I actually saw a motion picture. Yeah, in I've, theater before Wrath of Khan, so yeah. I mean that that you talk about a movie that really will drive down your expectations. Well, I fell asleep. I went to see that. In the, I went to see motion picture in the theater and fell asleep in the theater. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think I think the actors fell asleep on set. And honestly, every time I put the Blu-ray on, I kind of doze off. Yeah, but uh, but now when I watch the original series, it it. Now that it's 50 years away, it feels like such a time capsule that I'm wondering, is it going, is it going to continue to have the impact it had, at least the original series? Obviously, you know, Next Generation is, is 80s and 90s and Deep Space Nine and Voyager are 90s and then Na- uh, Enterprise is 2000. Uh, we have the Abrams films and now we have a new series. Mm-hmm. So there'll always, be a, there'll always be a current Star Trek to go to. But I'm wondering if the original series is starting to fade, especially now that most of that cast is gone. Well, you know, I think part of it is that the original series, um, you know, is so different from a look and feel perspective compared to anything that comes later. When you compare it to, you know, everything and, you know, and that's just a, f- a factor of budgets. It's a factor of everybody figuring out what they're going to do. It's uh, but, you know, Enterprise looks a lot more like Voyager and it looks a lot more like TNG uh, than TOS does. Yeah. And I think that was one of its drawbacks was it um, it it had been running on that engine that had been running for like 17 years straight. Mm-hmm. And the problem with Enterprise is it didn't look like Lost and it didn't look like Battlestar Galactica. And I think that that was one of the reasons it didn't run as long. It, right. it, it had gotten out of step with television today. And I think that's one of the reasons everyone's so excited about this Brian Fuller series is Brian Fuller's a guy who knows how to make cutting edge television. And it's doing it in the new streaming medium. Right. But... but 
for example, you watched Charlie X last night. Yeah. Um, I watched uh, Undiscovered Country, so I watched the same cast in the '90s. So it okay, <laughs> it's not a it's not a direct analog, but uh, I watched Trouble with Tribbles with Ben a couple weeks ago. Uh huh. Uh, did you could you connect to Charlie X the same way you used to? I think I was able to connect to it a little bit more, uh, and I actually found that episode more frightening than I have in the past. Um, because you're as, not the age of Charlie anymore. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I think that's you're the part age of, of you're older than Kirk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and I think at that point, that is uh, a story. I mean, that's a story about something that's truly horrifying. When you've got, you know, a child who is not a child; he's almost an adult, but with these unlimited powers who hasn't been taught right from wrong, who is just totally id-obsessed and trying to do whatever whatever he wants. And, you know, it's like, how do you even control that? Well, he's also trying um, to win, win affection and win he's favor. Tra- he's looking for... He's looking for companionship. So he's, he's looking look, he, through he's Kirk looking, as a father and he's looking to Yeoman Rand as a girlfriend. And I think with a lot more of the, you know awareness uh around uh some of those issues we're seeing more and more on the internet everything that's been talked about on on gamer uh, you know through the whole gamergate stuff and all the stuff we're seeing on there that makes charlie's approach to yeoman rand all that much creepier and you know we i mean we see we see charlie x today on you know random twitter and youtube comments uh you know and you know yeah, and you know, and Fortune just about everything that's just so totally selfish and just totally focused on himself in a way of just totally devaluing everybody else around him. You know, to you know whether it's making people just disappear, whether it's taking away a woman's face, uh, turning another one into a lizard. I I mean, it's it's really. I mean, it's really quite a, quite a striking thing to look at in light of everything that we've been, you know, experiencing through social media channels over the last three, four, five years. That's really interesting because because it reminds me of a classic Twilight Zone episode that we mentioned before. It's a Good Life where Billy Mummy plays like yep. a five year old with uh, unlimited powers, but uh, Charlie being you know an hormonal teenager with no social structure. You're. It, adds another layer to it. And you're right. And we're living in this age where we are a lot more powerful than we were because of the internet. I mean, you and I are on a radio show now. Yeah. (laughs) That couldn't have happened when we were in our twenties. Exactly. You know, uh, the, the way we can reach and affect people is, and in, and obviously in an anonymous way, is so much more powerful than it used to be. Used to be, you know, you talk to your friends in person, and then uh, you tried to meet people <laughs> in person, and then and then sometimes it wouldn't work out, and you'd go back to your friends. But now you can just kind of talk to anybody you want. Exactly, whether they want to hear from you or not. Right, you know, like I've had conversations with writers of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, writers of The Simpsons or, or Spider-Man. Some of them have been here. Uh, these are avenues that weren't open. And if 
if your incentive is negative, it's very easy to get that negativity across. Well, so, well but, yeah, the other thing, when we talk about, you know, what one of the things the Internet does, is, you know, in giving everyone a voice and in leveling the playing field, you know, going back 20 years or so, folks who were in the media uh, who were in uh, whether that be writers or actors or performers, that was really a completely separate stratum. And now when we're at the point where we can actually reach out to folks who are, you know, famous or who are creating famed content, uh, you know, there's a great level of connection with that. But at the same time, it means that for some folks, by removing, for lack of a better term, that pedestal or that barrier, you know, some folks are, you know, now feel compelled that they can take ownership, that they are owed something yeah. from the creators. Well, look at the um, uh, look at the fight Martin Shkreli has been posting over the last couple of days. That's that, I mean, that's kind of a that's that's amazing that he has chosen to pick that. And well, the feel, direction that's gone is just so bizarre. Yeah, I feel like we finally found somebody more narcissistic and sociopathic than Trump. Uh, you know, he it, <laughs> for those people who haven't been following, he just decided to pick a fight with Patton Oswalt. Like Patton Oswalt wasn't even talking about him. And then, of course, Patton just tore him down. Because he's very used to Twitter battles. And then so Martin Shkreli's, Martin Shkreli's uh, response to this was to go attack Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's... And yeah, this is completely sociopathic. But it proves that point of, of this, this guy who's a, who 20 years ago would just be an evil yuppie. We wouldn't know his name 20 years ago. No, we would just, he would, he would be in the he, post as like the pharma bro. You know, yeah. He, Which well, is he, what he's called now, but. Yeah, and well, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have even heard about this issue. Uh, you know, what he got into trouble, got in, got in, got all the attention for, uh, you know, jacking up the price of the AIDS drug. You know, 20 years ago, that would never have, never, never have grown, ha have grown into a story. Nobody would have known about it. You know, 20 years ago, nobody would have known about the, you know, the spike in, you know, the non-Screlly one, but the spike in the price of the EpiPen. Yeah. You know, that was just stories that could not happen 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. There's, uh, there's just such a wide road now. And that's another thing that the internet has done is it's raised, it's raised awareness of these issues that used to be clandestine. The downside is they usually don't last long, you know, and these, these, mm -hmm. everyone get, you know, internet outrage is, is now everyone's favorite pastime. And the next day we're already outraged about something else. So, so, so with, with what we've seen here with this technology leading us into this super inexpensive communications platform that everybody has access to, that doesn't cost them much. That promotes more and more connect connectivity am among folks that we already have today. How is it that the Star Trek universe and the characters in there don't have to deal with trolls in the way that we do? Because, as Gene Roddenberry said, uh, in the future, humanity is perfect. <laughs> and that's why he was only involved in season one of TNG. Right. Season one and two. Yeah. yeah. Although his rules lasted a long time. And uh, one of the reasons Deep Space Nine is my favorite show uh, is that Ari Stephen Bear went, fine, humans are perfect. Here's a lot of aliens. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I, I love one of the things I love so much about Star Trek is 
uh, I don't think there's been anything that's rebooted itself so many times and yet remains so successful. Certainly not in television. Right. right. Um, so, so, but with that in mind, one of the things that, that I think does also come, you know, is also interesting tied into this is that, you know, this show is really just what, about three years younger than Doctor Who. I mean, these are shows that essentially started in the same era, obviously in very different environments. Uh, the L.A. Hollywood environment versus the uh, uh, British bureaucratic environment of, of the BBC. One started as an entertainment program. One started as you know, sort of an, an, an education program for, for children. But they both have similarly wide fan bases and dedicated fan bases uh, have continued – and yet when you look at what's happening in Star Trek at the same time you look at what's happening in Doctor Who in the same year, the difference is just so stark. Yeah, well, I think they – even though they're, uh, they remain, they're enduring sci-fi legacies and they're as old as one another, I think the main difference between Star Trek and, and Doctor Who is Star Trek look, took less breaks. Like when Doctor Who came back in 2005, it had been 15 years since it had been on. There had been one movie that no one saw. Uh, So it it could literally relaunch itself in the way that the Star Wars prequels did. But of course, they could also do it in a way where they could tie back. But like... Uh, like Next Generation, you it could stand on its own. There are many Doctor Who fans who have never seen Tom Baker. With Star Trek, even though it's rebooted itself probably more times because each new show was completely different characters, some of them in different timelines, they were never that far away because you know, Next Generation starts as a Star Trek reboot while the original cast is still making movies. And then... Deep Space Nine overlaps Next Generation and Voyager, and Enterprise follows Voyager immediately. And then we only have about three or four years before between the end of Enterprise and the J.J. Abrams films. So I think there's, there's more of a layered approach to Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, because each one of those have different fans. One of the things I really love about now, uh, as you and I are getting older and older, <laughs> that uh, millennials don't have that connection to Kirk and Spock. Right. Which is why I think the J.J. Abrams films have had mixed results. They've done, they've done well, but they haven't been enormous blockbusters is by rebooting Kirk and Spock. They thought they were hitting what the core of the franchise was, but millennials never thought Star Trek was Kirk and Spock. Millennials thought Star Trek was Picard and Data. Right. Whereas for people like you and me, they were scrappy do, which is another <laughs> reference millennials won't get. <laughs> and, you, and, and and thank God they haven't had to endure scrappy. No. I don't even think Boomerang's showing them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I remember there was that feeling of Star Trek Four was very, very popular. And Next Generation came on a year later. And yes, it was a rocky first season. Right, But there was this feeling of usurping. Whereas in Doctor Who, when the Doctor regenerates, and, and this is just, just talking about like David Tennant to Matt Smith to Peter Capaldi, like the next season of this iteration, there is a clear dividing point of this one is done, this one has begun. 
And with Star Trek, I think, to its benefit and detriment, we've always had that sliding scale. You know, the, you know, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy didn't retire until close to the final season of Next Generation. And mm-hmm. Picard and Picard and Data left when Enterprise was on. And now we have this new, se- this new series, which overlaps with the... I keep calling it J.J. Abrams, even though he didn't do the last one. This J.J. Right. Abrams universe, which we now know we're getting a fourth one. Right. So it's, it's almost like a slide rule of timelines. And you can, you can pick your track. You know, and uh, I was talking with someone this morning about Star Trek. And he said, yeah, I'm going to watch them all again. And, and I was like, you mean the series? He said, no, I was thinking the movies. But if I watched the series, I would watch them all again, except Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise. <laughs> and then we argued about Deep Space Nine for the rest of our commute to work. <laughs> right. Because right. it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Star Trek is more of a buffet. Like Doctor Who is a meal with courses. Okay. You know, Star Trek is Star Trek is, is you take what you want. And I think that's why it keeps generating new fans. Whereas Doctor Who has kind of Doctor Who is actually in a state of decline at the moment because Capaldi's first season was rough and he certainly was not as sexy or as cute as Matt Smith. Right. And uh, I believe in America, it stayed about the same because it's always been a cult show in America. But in Britain, it's dropped. And they're trying to get the word out that this last season was so good and turn mm-hmm. things around because this last season was phenomenal. Well, you know, and when, you know, and they're also having the problem now of just taking these year and two year long breaks. Right. Because everyone's busy and yeah, you know, they're doing other shows. Really undercut, really undercuts, you know, any momentum that they could that they could be that they could have i right. mean we look at that last the most recent capaldi's most recent season that was great there was a ton of great stuff in there yeah the problem was it took that entire year to do mm-hmm. and that, which is why they're taking this year off because they don't want capaldi to leave you know right. they've had a doctor leave every three seasons which is a little fast mm-hmm. you know every five years would be comfortable as f- just from my fan perspective from a production perspective, I'm sure they'd want everybody to stay as long as Tom Baker. Sure, sure. But, but I mean, even historically, though, Tom Baker's, you know, everybody else was, was turning a lot faster, too. Yeah. You know, you know Hartnell also... was only two, three years. Troughton was only two or three years. I think uh, Pertwee was four or five, yeah, maybe. Yeah, he was a little longer. He was a little longer. Then we get the, the seven of Baker, and Davidson uh, and Colin Baker are in and out, and then... Uh, the whole thing gets uh, gets collapsed uh, around McCoy. Yeah, but but we we also had a lot more episodes back then because because the production was so low. You know, they just cranked right. them out, and they were all cliffhangers. So each story was four episodes long. Right, but, and thirty minutes. Yeah, and now it takes them a year to make thirteen. Mm-hmm. So they don't have time to do it because they look fantastic. I mean, right. That's another reason people are excited for Star Trek Discovery. This new streaming show is it's been 10 years since since we had Star Trek on the air. As we were just saying, the Star Trek we did have 10 years ago was a show 20 years ago, really, in terms of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and taking place even further before that. Right. Yeah. So they so they had to dumb down the technology. Mm-hmm. 
But na- now, with that precedent set by Doctor Who, like how can Star Trek compete? And that was one of the fun things about J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek was, uh, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about Star Trek Beyond, was when that f- first shot opens and you run under the U.S. Kelvin. Uh-huh. And it's this <laughs> massive battle. At the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is what Star Trek is like with a Star Wars budget. Right. Of course, then J.J. Abrams leaves and does Star Wars. He goes, no, not no, at no, all. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Star, but Star Trek has the opportunity to live on a much wider scope than it ever has before. So I, I, I am so, anxious to see how it competes because as, as we said, those shows are great. I could watch Deep Space Nine or the original series or Next Generation uh, probably for the rest of my life, but I do get that feeling of the era it was made. As I was saying in the beginning of the right. podcast, like is, it, is the old one now too old because it's the 60s? Uh, right. You know, well, and, be- and because of just the nature of, like we were saying earlier, with the subversive nature and the undercurrent of social commentary, that level of social commentary also becomes very specific to the era in which it was made and the challenges that folks were addressing. Right. And you look at Next Generation. I mean, besides the big hair and shoulder pads and the pastels mm-hmm. on the on the bridge, there is that Reagan era of we're the kings of the world and we're just keeping order. And we, right. and we don't have to get that excited because we really don't have to flex our muscles because you see it coming. Exactly. And and then D Space Nine is kind of the self-reflection of that. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the Clinton years where the nineties are so fascinating to me. Um, not only because I was young then. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there uh we were talking I was talking with this on uh at the Museum of uh Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about where they have the television in the 90s uh, I find it interesting was that the country was doing so well under Clinton we had no wars the economy was booming we were creating the internet you know uh, things were going really really well and all of our entertainment was getting darker and darker and darker you know the X because well, you- they had the X files and Deep Space Nine and the crow mm-hmm. you know uh and you know, dark city, and then culminating with the Matrix. Like we were so into dystopia at a time where we were really prosperous. Yeah, we we were really prosperous. The rest of the world was going through a lot of different kinds of challenges. Then, I mean, right now, you know, despite everything that's going on in the world, there are fewer wars going on now, and fewer people dying in conflict than ever before. Uh, you know, in you know, basically the history of the world. But even when you when you look at what was going on in the '90s, yeah, we had all that stuff happening down, and we had in the early '90s, you had the full, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and, and the Iron Curtain. But immediately, but following that, you had you know all the struggles of those emerging economies, and things were not going well there. You had uh, you know the collapse of Yugoslavia and the Kosovo. Uh, and, and Serbian conflicts where we, you know, we were engaged militarily. We had, uh, you know, the situations exploding in Rwanda and, and, and you know, in, in terms of, you know, the, you know the, the ethnic cleansings there happening in a way that, you know, we weren't in, involved in, in trying to stop. And that's one, sort of one of the, you know, the legacies of the Bill Clinton administration now is, you know, the lack of action 
in in some of those places. It was the 90s that really gave us the you know we talk about the Holocaust uh, under under Hitler and we talk about the uh, the tremendous uh, you know killings under Pol Pot, but it was the 90s that actually give us the term ethnic cleansing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- yeah, that's interesting. And I think those are themes that start to get addressed in Deep Space Nine and Voyager because both of those shows, they're very different shows. But mm-hmm. Both of those shows are have that stranger in a strange land feel. You know, right. Deep Space Nine is the Federation is coming into this outpost. They are completely underpowered. They have to work with the local government. They're trying to keep they're trying to keep a truce between these two warring nations. Then in the middle of it, a third war breaks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that was because nobody cared about the Bajorans, right? And people were stopping watching Deep Space Nine, uh, but but there's that, and then Voyager is obviously you know about this ship full of refugees, basically of of like the Peace Corps of going in going. There's so many episodes of them going into a situation they don't understand. And that, feeling you know, like they should be the authority, but immediately that authority is undermined by the fact that culturally they don't fit in that area. Well, you know, and at the same time, let's remember how that starts. That starts with Voyager being sent to stop a bunch of terrorists. Right. You know, including terrorists, you know, like we even see, even following out of TNG, we have, you know, uh, crew members deserting the Enterprise. Uh, for, uh, you know, for, you know, to become breakaway terrorists. We right. see that with, uh, with Ro Lauren. Uh, well, and that was all, that was all specifically to set up Voyager. Right. Like the, right. the Maquis was created for Voyager and they, and they put, they put seeds in both Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of, you know, in a Marvel Cinematic Universe way, kind mm-hmm. of build out, build that out. But, but yeah, that was the original intent was, was to have freedom fighters and the and the military living together, right? And and, and seeing how that conflict is going to play out in Voyager, and so I mean that's certainly an undercurrent there. Oh, and and by the way, uh, on a slight Star Trek tangent here, mm. we were just watching Rascals earlier this evening. Okay, this is the TNG episode where, due to a thing and a transporter thing, uh, Picard, uh, Keiko O'Brien, Rolaren, and Guinan are turned into children. It's a weird grouping. It, yeah, it is. And it, you know, there's so much about this episode that is just bizarre in its own way. First of all, you know, I'm going to give them the turning them into children. I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with that. This episode, two th- there, there are two things that stand out. First of all, Guinan is giving Ro uh, Lauren a hard time about, why didn't you like being a child more? And why didn't you appreciate childhood? And childhood was awesome, you know, seeming to you know, undercut the idea that, you know, Rolaren really actually sort of spent her childhood in a concentration camp under Cardassian rule. So I, I think a little more sympathy was called for there. But my biggest problem with that episode is that a group, of, a small group of Ferengi managed to take over the flagship of the Federation by force, knock out Worf, invade the Enterprise, and, and take... A, and how bad, how bad shape is the Federation when a small group of Ferengi can do that? If they were talking about the Ferengi foreclosing on the Enterprise or getting a lean against it, sure, I could buy that. But that was my big problem with the Rascals. Yeah, the Ferengi never worked on Next Generation. <laughs> well, you know, the Ferengi were set up to be the main enemy. Right. And then their first episode was like, nobody's taking this seriously. And 
Uh, it's a great design. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily scary, but it's a it's a really great design for an alien with the ears that connect to the brow and the nose. Right. Uh, there was actually a Ferengi in the first episode of Rick and Morty. Oh, really? Yeah, just like kind of like they're waiting online in a space station. There's a Ferengi in front of them, so it's an enduring, it's an enduring design. But right. on Next Generation, they never figured out what they what they were. It's Deep Space Nine. It's Deep Space Nine. And it's Iris, Stephen Bear, and through Quark, and then Rom and Nog, and you know that's where you get the Grand Nagus, and and you get uh, Ferenginar, and you get the rules of acquisition. The rules of acquisition, which, and you really build out what it means for a Ferengi, and you get to see Ferengi being different from one another. Yeah, and there's there's a turn where it's the Ferengi are always kind of anti-Semitic. In a way that, like, the Trade mm-hmm. Federation and Phantom Menace was anti-Asian. Right. Because they hired all these short New York Jewish actors. <laughs> like, every one of them is a short New York Jewish actor uh-huh. to play Ferengi. And Iris Stephen Bear is a short New York Jewish guy. And he's like, you know what? These are like Neil Simon plays. <laughs> <laughs> and those episodes are great. Mm-hmm. And it's this backwards... It's like this bizarro uh, culture they have. It's almost like Oscar in Grouchland, <laughs> where like everything that's awful about people is celebrated. Right. But I, I, yeah, I love Ferengi. But man, in Next Generation, they like sometimes they're tough, sometimes they're weaselly, sometimes they're comic relief, sometimes they're rapists. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> It's so bizarre. The same thing with the Romulans. The Romulans like spent all of Next Generation threatening. Right. Like yeah, and- they never really figured out what the Romulans were. No, Nemesis was supposed to be finally about the Romulans, and then they were like, "Ah, it's the Remans," and they killed the Romulans. Oh yeah. Well, and Nemesis ended up just being about, uh, you know, just talking. Yeah. Ne- uh, well, yeah. There's uh. It- if you ever want to go back and listen to our audio commentaries on audio commentaries podcast, which still exists on iTunes, we did that one with uh, Jared Logan, who's a great uh-huh. comedian, who uh, screamed in the middle of it. There was all this talking. Then they started shooting. Then they paused it for more talking. <laughs> Nemesis now, the reason to watch Nemesis is to watch Bane do Patrick Stewart. <laughs> That alone feels like five dollars. You want to spend? Oh, that was such a terrible movie. It's a mess, and it's the and it's this. It's certainly not the undiscovered country for next generation. No, no, and and yet it's really the last. It's the last TNG movie. That's it. Yeah, that's it for them because. So it. I mean, what what's interesting is to think you know how, for as enduring as it is, and for as much as we love these characters, did is it possible for a really bad movie? to kill the franchise. Did Nemesis kill TNG uh, yes. franchise? Yes, it did. Nemesis killed basically all of Star Trek. So how did T how did TOS survive TMP? Um, they survived the motion picture uh, because science fiction was, was still viable. Motion picture made some money. Yeah. It didn't bomb. But it, it didn't bomb. No, no, no. And Wrath of Khan cost one third what That's, motion picture did. They but, said you can make a Ill- really cheap movie. They made a great movie. But mm-hmm. I mean, that movie is like three sound stages. I mean, 
Khan yeah. and Kirk, Khan and Kirk are on the same set the whole time. <laughs> right. Right. But at the same time, it didn't alienate the fans in such a way. And and maybe you're right. Maybe it's just because they where else were the fans going to go? By the time we get to, uh, you know, the time of Nemesis, there are so many other options out there for genre fans. Well, I think at that point hadn't, uh, or is it right before? I think Ron Moore had started Battlestar Galactica, which was like a big suitcase of ideas they didn't let him do on Star Trek. Right. And he gets, he gets to, I mean, he gets to remake, you know, uh, I Borg. Yeah. Yeah, and go the other way. And go the other I, the way. first time I saw that episode where Dom was like, yeah, give him all the virus. I was like, this is Iborg. This is a fight he lost about Iborg. Exactly, exactly. And they still end up with the same result. Yeah. Yeah, but but uh, they're mean. <laughs> and Battlestar, man, Battlestar Galactica was a show that was just great, 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 great. No good. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's hard to go back. Yeah. You know the the the, the la- it, you know I found the last episode uh, of of Battlestar Galactica to just be astoundingly mediocre, and then they tell us that it was all for nothing because it was only one of those characters who actually lived on to become you know the mother of the entire modern human race. Right, and it was all it was also like Lost, where when it ended, I was like, oh, you tied up all the ends, you went in a place that I didn't expect, but I, I'm going to respect your choice, okay. And then I thought back, and I was like, what? And and unfortunately, as we've learned in days of uh, continuity and binge watching, uh, if you don't have a good ending, you no longer have a good series. Right. Yeah. You know, if you don't know where you're going to end from very early on, you know, then it just becomes like life. Yeah, instead who of, wants that? Yeah, exactly. If I if I really wanted life, I wouldn't be watching TV. Yeah, but you know, but you know, you know, people don't like the last Seinfeld. But people still love Seinfeld. Well, Seinfeld wasn't, you know, the difference is everything about BSG was leading up to the end and the story. You know, as you know, the great thing about, you know, binge watching and streaming and DVD series is that you can do these season long and these series long episode arcs in a way that you really weren't able to when Seinfeld was on the air. But the difference, the trade off is that with an episode, a series like Seinfeld, even when the end is a dud like that and i thought it was a terrible ending it was very disrespectful to the characters i still kind of like it each you know each individual episode isn't leading to that it's not taking you there you know you can you can really you can still enjoy them it's just a piece a piece of it yeah there might be a common thread some little thing that comes through but it's not the dominant thing every I think seinfeld tried to do that retroactively with the last episode you know like bringing all the characters back um i it's not a great episode. No. I, I say that. It's, it's certainly it's certainly not the final episode of the next generation. You, uh, you know, so this, the final episode of Seinfeld would have worked as about a twenty minute uh, side clip during a Jerry Lewis telethon. No, I say the the final episode of Seinfeld would have worked great as the final episode of episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, if okay. everybody Larry pissed off showed up and and sent him to jail. Uh-huh. That would be great. <laughs> and I th- I think it was the f- the fact that the Seinfeld characters hadn't been pushed into unlikability the way Larry pushed himself. Right. Right. But uh oh and we're getting more curb by the way. That's pretty good. Okay. He's he's just finally decided to do a new season. He's going to do more. <laughs> he is. 
Awesome. <laughs> and it's going to be great. And Jeff Garland's going to be in it. Jeff Garland had it written into his contract in the Goldbergs that whenever Larry wants to do Curb, he gets to do it. <laughs> nice. So whether they have to write him out or they work the schedule, just so he can walk around L.A. going, I know, I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> But yeah, you know what? I've been me. So I was going to open the podcast with this question, and now we're getting close to the end. Sure. Uh, I know your personal history <laughs> with Star Trek. Sure. But uh, as we said, we both said where we started. We started with the reruns, which led us into the movies. Mm-hmm. But now that we're at a point where we can step back and look at it as a whole, what is your favorite series? Oh, that is an excellent question. I there, there, there's something to love in, in in each of them. It's it's hard to say that uh, uh, you know a series is my favorite. Part of me wants to go to Enterprise or Voyager. Just from the because I did enjoy I did enjoy those shows. I enjoy I I am proud and happy to say I enjoyed both Voyager and Enterprise. I enjoyed it. They have they have their they have they have their weak spots, but part of it is, you know, you know, because they get crapped on so much, uh, I, I really, you know, feel, you know, some affinity to them. And I, my, my yeah. I did enjoy Enterprise more than Voyager. And it's interesting, it was making me think of uh how each show reacted to their environment. Mm-hmm. Enterprise is the biggest whiplash because because it uh, starts like right around nine eleven, right? And it's a different show. Like when it start when it starts, it thinks it's talking about the tech boom. It thinks it's talking about like startup companies, and we're going to use this new technology to change our lives, uh-huh. and we're going to be these pioneers and and go new places and change the world. And then nine eleven happens, and they're just not. That show is just knocked for a loop, right? And they're just like they they don't know they don't know what to do, which, which is how it, which the country the, was feeling. Yeah, well, and then that gave us the Zindi arc, right. the Zindi season, which was really some pretty amazing stuff that I could have used with the last episode of that season not ending up with you know it was an archer world war II. looking at like a gorilla nazi or, or, or what no, it was like it was like yeah uh, it was alien nazis yeah alien nazis it's like what yeah uh, but, there, but, but the zindi thing was interesting because for me i thought it went up and down but it just showed the confusion yeah that we were feeling of like well, we're not, it's not a national war. So the Zindi are actually five different aliens. Right. And they all attack us differently. So we don't, we can't just send the army after them. Mm-hmm. And we don't really have a plan. And in the end, it's just like Archer running in slow motion from a bomb because that's what Hollywood movies do. Right. Right, but I, and, I, you know, and because and because of that, and because they had to adapt to that, they ended up throwing, you know, you know, they t- were never able to actually do anything with the uh, the temporal war. Yeah, that just gets lost by the wayside, which is like a, a weird, like X Filesy conspiracy plot. Yeah. And then that final season where uh, Brandon Braga leaves and Manny Cota comes in and goes, "Ah, fuck it, we're doing fan fiction." <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And it's like we're it's, going to the Vulcan planet, and we're gonna tell you how the Klingons lost the bumps on their heads, <laughs> and we're gonna meet some Tholians, and, and we're gonna bring in Brent Spiner. We're gonna do two episodes in the Mirror Universe. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Here's RoboCop. <laughs> And then that was the controversial last episode. The last episode is all about Riker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bring back, bring back Riker and Troy. Yeah, it, it it's crazy, but there there is a lot I admire about that. I Scott mm-hmm. Bakula obviously can do no wrong in television, even mm-hmm. when he's on a show that doesn't last. He he knocks it out. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. They had they had some really good characters on that show. They had some really good actors on that show. Uh, and they did, you know, you know, one of the things I, I, the, one of the other things I really enjoy about Enterprise Thanks is again to Doug Drexler. Those were really how great stories. willing uh, they one of the were I love doing to this take podcast. those chances. If you want to follow you know, me, I'm a lot of people deride the theme song as being very, you know, it, it, as being so completely out of tone and, and, and I believe it's I the last I, television theme song with lyrics, <laughs> you know, I, but, at the, but at the same time, by a good 10 years. You know, but at the same time, it was a, a that was quite a quite a decision to make and quite a risk to take with that. And they took those risks. And that opening sequence, you combine the theme song with the early rockets and all that, uh, you know, and showing that evolution of space. That was really that was a fantastic opening sequence overall for for telling the story we originally thought they were going to try telling us before uh before uh you know al-qaeda came and went and screwed up star trek right yeah yeah that's the one thing we can blame them for but but <laughs> i think we can blame them for more things than <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I, but i think we can just add that to the list yeah but you were you were saying part of you wants to vote for voyager or enterprise but but you know the, the the challenge is they just are not enduring in the same way TNG is, and and TNG is just you know has just become so much more iconic uh, than a Voyager or or an Enterprise was. And I mean, in thirty years, we're not going to be talking about Enterprise in the way we're talking about Voyager, or excuse me, the way we're talking about TNG. But now putting TNG up against the original series, I. Th- think they are going to i think i think we're still going to talk about tos uh, alongside tng they're two very different shows they are uh and and they're gonna have and so and so that is going to is going to carry through i mean the thing that t that tos has going for it uh as opposed to as opposed to a, a voyager excuse me as opposed to tng is that one of the things TOS, you know, you know, having fewer episodes makes it a little bit more acce- a little bit more accessible than the entire expanse of TNG. At the same time, TOS you can appreciate on more levels. Sure, there's some real silliness that happens in uh, TNG when they evolve backwards or in Rascals or some of this other stuff, but you know, there's just something that's a little bit more straightforward about TNG. You can appreciate TOS for, you know, you know, literally the serious impact they've had on science and engineering today the, for the people they've inspired. You can celebrate it for what it meant for television and for a different approach. Celebrate it for the birth of this entirely new, this entire franchise. And at the same time, you can mock it ruthlessly for the outfits, for the behavior, for the Shatner, 
for, you know, everything from just the, the whole, you know, you know, the, the chairs that don't even attach to the, the, the floor and the, you know, the cardboard effects and, you know, some of, some of the weaker storytelling of, you know, Spock's brain and some of this other stuff. But, you know, so TOS, you can appreciate on so many more levels, the ironic, the unironic, the, you know, the, the, the significance, the importance and the sheer silliness of a lot of it in a way that you, it's all, I, th- I find it harder to do with a, uh, with a, a you know, with a, a TNG or an enterprise or a Voyager. Yeah. I used to say, um, back when TNG was on is I liked both shows, but I, but I liked TOS more because when TNG is bad, it's boring. When TOS is bad, it's hilarious. It's yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, th- what I find so fascinating is that this is the one franchise where lightning truly struck twice. Mm-hmm. Is that you're right? We're at this point now, and as we're saying, millennials grew up with TNG. Is Picard is no less iconic than Kirk, and you have two Kirks now. But, right. But you, it's still. So iconic. And honestly, it's so iconic that when you watch an X-Men movie, you go, oh, look, Captain Picard is playing Professor X. <laughs> like, I love Patrick Stewart. I, mm-hmm. uh, Renee and I went to see Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen on Broadway. And live, they were both phenomenal. But, but he, Picard, he never loses himself in Professor X the way he built that character of Picard. Right. And Very true. And it's it's just iconic. My uh, and now we're seeing all of these memes. You know, uh, you know, in the eighties and nineties, there were all these catchphrases about Shatnerisms. You mm-hmm. know, and like and uh, you and I and the group of our friends would all do Shatner. Oh sure. <laughs> in, in the nineties, and we would quote episodes, and we would uh, pull out videotapes and point out scenes. And I'm seeing that happen now with TNG. With, you know, the Picard I mean, facepalm and I, the I, what I the still fuck. and Shatnerpalooza.com. No one tried to buy it? Nope. I haven't it for sale. <laughs> Shatner didn't try to buy it? You got to sell that. Shatner will buy it. Oh, uh, yeah. You, sh- you Wait till the summer. <laughs> you just missed your opportunity because all of Palooza came through. But, but I'm seeing that the same thing happen with TNG online i mean there's so many picard memes uh have you seen the wharf denied video yes i believe i may have posted that on the yeah, uh I've, I've, podcast I've, yeah. 15 minutes of people saying no to wharf <laughs> and and almost every time that's the wrong thing to do yeah a <laughs> lot of times he's making a lot of sense put put, put up the shields captain yeah it, no it all comes down to i don't trust that guy He's fine. And then the whole episode is about that guy taking over the Enterprise. <laughs> oh, uh, to plug Mission Log again, sure. I was ju- they did A Matter of Time this week, which is the, uh, the Matt Frewer, the Max Headroom episode where he's the time traveler. Oh, okay. Um, they, mentioned, <laughs> they mentioned two pieces of trivia, which I found interesting. It was written for Robin Williams. Interesting. Uh, but he was he couldn't get out of hook. He could, <laughs> so he didn't have the time to do it. And uh, I, I'm not I, sure that was the right call. Yeah. Well, and I assume they probably reached him through Whoopi. Um, yeah. But before they gave it to Matt Frewer, who does a great job at it. Sure. 
uh, they offered it to Tom Baker. Really? They wanted so that is as close as we've ever come to a Star Trek Doctor Who episode. And for those people who haven't seen a matter of time, it's an episode about uh, Matt Frewer appears on the Enterprise, says he's from the future to watch this event in history. And meanwhile, he's stealing everything on the Enterprise. Because, <laughs> spoiler alert, it turns out he came from the past, stole a time machine, yeah. and he's just trying to rob them. But if that was Tom Baker... That would be amazing. Because you know he would just be the Doctor. Oh, yes. And the scenes where he hits on Dr. Crusher. And, and the thing is, most people wouldn't get the connection yeah, I wouldn't have because no. you know, I, I when I heard that I listened to the podcast today. The first thing I wanted to do was Google Tom Baker nineteen ninety one because I know what he looks like now, and right, I know right. know what he looked like then. But what did he look like like seven years after he was the Doctor? Yeah. Was he recognizable? He played Captain Rum in Black Adder, mm-hmm. and I didn't recognize him until about a year ago in that. <laughs> but that yeah, that would have been it fascinating and like literally he shows up in a little time machine and that's 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 one of those things that's amazing too and you know comparing the shows is that tng was on the air only seven years after tom baker stopped being the doctor tng was on the air while sylvester mccoy was the doctor yeah it's it's a it's a you know and you know, you know, comparing, you know, watching those episodes side by side and the difference is just just incredible. Yeah. So you, you go with TNG. Yeah, probably. Probably. But my my captain is still Janeway. Well, yeah, I that that's a whole podcast. And I, like, <laughs> I, I believe we've done that podcast. Yeah, I think we probably have because I still don't understand that one. I feel like even even. Kate Kate Mulgrew's captain isn't Janeway. <laughs> I feel like she's on Orange is the New Black now going like, thank God, no more Janeway. <laughs> uh, well, well, I you know, I will say I will say this. When we talk about um about the shows being iconic, however, um let's let, you know, we we have to keep in mind the idea of the red shirt. The red shirt that's in that's that's destined to die just because they go on that away mission. As the security personnel, yeah, and they and yet they were only red shirts in TOS. Yep, they were they were gold shirts on every other show. Exactly, but they're still red shirts. Yeah, red red shirt is a total is a total. It's so funny that uh, I was watching the Apple with Ben, and they beamed down with three red shirts, and I was like, all those guys are gonna die. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, how do you know? I was like, well, first of all, I've seen this. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, they're all wearing red shirts and they're not Scotty. Right. And, the, and I actually saw, uh, people were posting, people were posting, uh, pictures of, of Star Trek, mostly TOS for the 50th mm. anniversary, which makes sense. That was sure. 50 years ago, but somebody posted a picture of the cast and another person commented that guy in the red shirt's going to die. And there was Scotty. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, there were cast members that wore red shirts. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I do think it's iconic. The other meme that, that, that circulates around that is you see, I think it's in the, you know, you, you've got Scotty hitting on somebody. And the meme is like, you're the only, you're looking at the only, uh, 
the only, you know, the only guy in a red shirt not to die. Yeah. And, I, and, 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 and you have Uhura talking to somebody else. It's like, yeah, the only guy. 